Okay, let's read, or if you would follow along with me as I read verses uh, 17 through 21, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking at the Christian's call to a life of reverence. It says, For if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So last week we began this new section, verses 13 through 16, and our focus was holy living, that uh, because God is holy, we are to be holy, because we are his children, we are to be obedient children, and uh, we are not to live in a manner uh, that we lived prior to our salvation. And so Peter was calling his brethren to action, he was calling them to be uh, prepared in their minds, or to have the loins of their minds girded. Uh, sober in spirit, that means that they're not intoxicated by the things of the world, and to have their hope completely fixed on that grace to be brought at the revelation of Christ. And so we have a firm foundation, a firm hope, looking at what we know is going to happen in the days to come. That means that we're not shaken by what happens here and now, because we know the certainties of glory, the certainties of the return of Christ, uh, that is to give us a firm foundation. And then he calls his brethren and us to be holy like God himself. So he is the ultimate example, not just an example, but his very nature, his attributes, his character is holy. And because he is our father, we are his children, there's the expectation that the child is like the father. Uh, that's something that you would find in the ancient Near Eastern culture. You find that today uh, with uh, many people. And um, that's certainly the case spiritually as we are the children of God. And then there is that uh, validation, the strength, the authority for that exhortation. It comes from Scripture itself. And so Peter here is quoting um, from Leviticus. And so it shows that a New Testament apostle is going back to the authority of the Old Testament prophets. And so whether we are looking at the New Testament or we look at the Old Testament, we find that the message is consistent. God wants his people to be separate. He wants his people to be holy, unlike the world, and striving to be like him. Well, verses 17 through 21 uh, give us another exhortation, another expectation uh, concerning the lives that we live as Christians. And so we see verses 13 through 16, we are called to holiness. In verses 17 through 21, we're called to live a life of fear or a life of reverence. And so here, as we look at these uh, four verses or five verses, we're going to look primarily at, at two reasons why we should live lives that are marked by reverence. The first one is that we will be held accountable by God. Uh, that if we claim to be children of God, we call him father. We need to know that he's father, but he's also judge. He judges both the believer and the unbeliever, and they're a different type of judgment, but we need to understand that. And so we'll look at that first of all in verse 17, that we are to live reverently as one who is accountable to God. Uh, the second reason is because we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so we are to live with that fear, live with that reverence, because we understand the, the, the tremendous cost of redemption, that Christ gave everything to redeem us from the bondage of sin and Satan and death and liberate us and, and bring us into that marvelous light of the knowledge of God through Christ. And so uh, we need to make sure that we understand the high cost of redemption, not just the price that was paid, but the one who paid it, and his character, his nature, uh, and then his motive to see that he did it out of love. He did it for us, for our sake. And so we will see that uh, precious truth this morning. And so as we call, or as we are called by Peter through Scripture to live lives of reverence, those will be our two points. Live reverently as one who is accountable to God, and then live reverently as one who is redeemed by Jesus Christ. Let's start with verse 17. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, as we read this in our English translations, uh, we see that verse 17 really does begin with an assumption. 
uh, if you address as father the one who impartially judges. Now in English, we might take that as, okay, maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you are hungry, then you'll get something, but you might not be hungry. So no, maybe you're not going to eat at this time. Uh, in English, that's the way we would take it kind of by default, but in Greek, that's not the case. There are different conditional clauses. And what you find here is what is known as a first-class conditional clause. And that clause is better understood as since you address as father. It presupposes that Peter's brethren are calling upon God as father. And so it's not so much that Peter is saying, well, if you consider God to be your father, then here's what we would expect. What it is really saying is this, is that because you call upon God as your father, since you call him father, since you address him as your heavenly father, because this is true of you, then this should also be true of you. So in this situation, uh, the Greek is much more specific. It's much clearer when we look at this clause in the Greek, and it is uh, to be understood that Peter's brethren are calling upon God as their father. And because of their, um, their certainty of God as their father, then this places them under the expectation and the responsibility to live lives that are proper as children of God, to live in a certain manner, to walk in a certain manner in their daily lives as children of God. And so there is that expectation that there is a proper parent-child relationship. And again, in this situation, we're talking about the spiritual parent-child relationship. Now, we know from other passages that we are children of God. Uh, there's no doubt about that. If you were to look at uh, Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 6, we'll take a look here quickly. <clears throat> Galatians 4, verse 6, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In verse 5, <clears throat> excuse me, you see here that we would receive adoption as sons. And of course, their sons means children. It's not gender specific. It's you know, men and women who are the children of God. Uh, and so here we see that we are uh, children of God because of our relationship in Christ. If you were to look at uh, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And so John is giving his brethren assurance that they are children of God. We've been given this wonderful privilege. Look at the love that God has poured out upon us, love that, that is, is uh, um, responsible for, for him adopting us. That was his motive in sending Christ <clears throat> to save people. We are his children. He says, indeed we are. There's no doubt about it. We are the children of God. And there are many other passages that give us that wonderful truth. And so for Peter's uh, brethren here, uh, this is a logical understanding. If they understand salvation, they understand the gospel, then they will have that assurance that, yes, I am a child of God. It's not the general understanding by so many people that, well, yes, I was created by God. God is our father. God, you know, God is everyone's father. Well, he is in the sense that God is responsible for the creation and existence of every human being. But not every human being is a spiritual child of God. Many are the enemies of God. Many will be cast out on that day, and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice wickedness or lawlessness. It is only those who are saved by Jesus Christ, who have been given the privilege to be called children of God. And, and so, as Peter's brethren here are calling upon God as Father, uh, they are falling back on a rock-solid truth. We are the children of God. And so Peter says, since you are, since you address him as God, and you have that relationship, or you address him as Father, there is then the expectation that you live in a specific way. Um, and, and as the addressing here goes, it's probably a reference to um, not just saying I believe in God or not just saying I am a child of God, but to call upon God, perhaps in prayer, to call out to him. Remember, Peter's brethren are, are scattered all through Asia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Uh, we see that in verse 1. They are scattered, they are aliens, 
Uh, they're residing as aliens, which means they're sojourning. They're not in their homelands. And what we're going to find out here and later in chapter 2, that even if they were in the places of their birth, they're still aliens and strangers because this world is not their final dwelling place. We are citizens of this world, but we are citizens of heaven in a much greater and longer-lasting way. And so we need to remember that our time here on earth is very temporary. We are transient here on earth. We are making our way towards our heavenly dwelling, and as we are doing that, we address God our Father. We call upon Him. We implore Him. We go to Him in prayer, and as we're making this... this um, address to him, calling upon him, invoking him. Uh, perhaps what Peter has in mind is the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 6. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Not a verbatim prayer, but giving us kind of the breakdown of a well-balanced prayer. And, and we begin that by calling upon our heavenly Father. And so we see here, and, and Peter would have been there right under the teaching of Christ, hearing all about prayer and that we are to call upon our Heavenly Father in prayer. And so perhaps what Peter is, is referencing here is that as you address God as Father, and maybe in the, the back of his mind he's thinking, this is exactly what Jesus told us to do, call upon our Heavenly Father in prayer, then you need to understand there's a certain expectation of how you are to live. And, and that's really his foundation here as he goes on to talk about living a life of reverence. He says, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And so what his brethren and what we need to remember today is that we are children of God. He is our father, but he's also judge. Okay. He is judge as well. Now, judge is a, a, an aspect of who God is and what he does that many people do not like. People do not want to hear that God is a judge. They don't want to hear that he's a righteous judge, he's a holy judge, he's an angry judge. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear anything about judgment or condemnation or accountability. They want the, the user-friendly you know, parent who is more of a buddy than a parent. And that's the way many people see God. But we need to understand, and we understand this even in, in human uh, situations that, yes, as parents, we want to be friends to our children, but first and foremost, we are parents. That relationship needs to be established. That relationship needs to be ex um, respected, and that relationship is more important than the friendship level with your children because, you know, just being the friend is not going to give the children everything they need in a parent. Well, in, in some way, we need to remember that about God as well. When we look at God being a judge, uh, uh, Edmund E. Bear writes this in his commentary that uh, a judge means to separate or to judge means to separate or distinguish and then to, to evaluate and make a decision. It does not indicate an antagonistic attitude, but an action designed to discover the true nature of the person or thing judged. So what we can see here about God is that God is the impartial judge because he weighs all the evidence. God is looking at the facts. He's looking at what has happened, what the person has said, what the person has done. He'll look at the motives of each individual, and he will make a righteous decision. There's no bias in his decision. And so when we talk about him being a judge, he is a fair judge. He is a righteous judge. He is a good judge. Every judgment is righteous and true. He never makes a mistake. You, you will never find anyone who's convicted by God, and you find out later on through forensic evidence that they were really innocent. And then they're, you know, released from the lake of fire 3,000 years later and then ushered into heaven. That's not going to happen. Okay? That happens in our judicial system, but that does not happen in God's courtroom. He is an impartial judge in every judgment. He evaluates everything. He knows every fact, every detail, and he is not a biased judge. Okay? We see here he is an impartial judge. And, and when we talk about God being this impartial judge... Uh, it's, it's from a, a compound word that means to, to, uh, to receive the countenance of someone. Now, before we get to that, there was a couple of verses here I want us just to go back over or go over that, that deal with judgment so we can see here the judgment that is being spoken of. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Kind of jump the gun here. 
But uh, 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so Peter is telling his brethren this, that God is going to deal with the unbeliever, but God deals with his children first. And while you're here on earth, God is going to deal with us. He will assess what we're doing. He will judge us. And many times Christians will have to, to deal with the temporal consequences of their actions. Sometimes it's blessings, sometimes it's punishment. Sometimes there's situations that God uses to bring us back in line. And so the, the judge aspect of God, we see it's, it's not just in the future. For us believers, it's also here in the now, in our present day. And so we have to live our lives with that full understanding that what I do here and now matters, not just in glory, but in time and space and in this, uh, this realm in which I live. And so we, we see that aspect of it. But of course, there is the future judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 talk about what is known as the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. And that is that all Christians are going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of their lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so here, this is not talking about the great white throne judgment. This is not talking about the judgment which results in condemnation in the lake of fire. This is talking about a judgment of accountability for the stewardship that we have been given by Christ. That as Christians, we have been given spiritual gifts. We have been given certain uh, blessings and, and things in this world that we are to use for the glory of God, to live for him. And so we are going to have to give an answer for what we have done with those things that Christ has put under our care. And, and each one is going to have to give an account. At no point is any believer in jeopardy of losing his or her salvation at this judgment. Uh, most commentators believe that this has to do with heavenly rewards. What those rewards are, we don't know exactly. Um, but whatever they are, they are going to be uh, based upon standing before Christ. And, and um, I, I don't even want to speculate at what the rewards might be because we simply don't know. But we understand that Christ will reward us. We will be recompensed for what we have done in the body, meaning during our lives here on earth. And so this is, is likely what Peter has in mind about God being judge. He doesn't want his brethren to fear God as a judge who's going to send them to eternal punishment, but to understand that they are accountable to him and that the lives they live must be lives that bring glory to his name and demonstrate good stewardship as his people. And so we need to make sure that we, we call upon him as father, but we also need to know he is judge as well. And God being an impartial judge, as I, I began here just a few minutes ago, it, it's from a compound word, which means the countenance, the appearance of someone. If we say someone's countenance has changed, we're usually talking about their facial expression. And, and so as God is, is uh, judging individuals, as they're standing before him, he's not looking at who they are physically. He's not looking at their, their outward appearance. Okay? And, and so uh, he's not receiving who they are on the outside, the superficial, we could say. Many times in this world, people will judge others based on the superficial things. Maybe it is their status, maybe it is their wealth, maybe it is their physical beauty, or in the eyes of that judge, the lack of that physical beauty. We see it all the time, we hear about it all the time, people who receive preferential treatment. That's not the case with God. God doesn't confer special favor upon anyone because of their appearance or gender or race or education or social status. Those things mean nothing to God. God looks at the individual. He looks at the motive. He looks at what they have done. He evaluates their thoughts and their actions, and then he pronounces his judgment. Then he pronounces his verdict, and it's an impartial one. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, it makes no difference. When you stand before God, either in judgment, which results in condemnation, or the judgment of the heavenly rewards, God is an impartial judge. We never have to worry about God giving people that uh, preferential treatment. And so he is the impartial judge. 
And, and as we look here, as we continue in verse 17, you are to conduct yourselves because it's each one's work that God is judging. This tells us that this is not a corporate judgment. God is not going to judge a person based on their family, based on the congregation that they're part of, based on the church where they have membership, based on the, the nation that they were raised in. God is going to judge each person. That is why it's so important for us as believers to make sure, especially with our children, to let them know you need to answer the question, who is Christ? You are not going to be received by God because your father is a pastor. You're not going to be allowed into heaven because your mother is a pastor's wife or a deaconess or she's the head of the women's board. You're not going to have salvation because your parents were missionaries or because you know, your father is, is an evangelist or whatever it is. Uh, we do not ride into heaven on anyone's coattails. We have to make sure that we understand it is a personal accountability. It's not corporate. There is no corporate salvation when it comes to the salvation of souls. Even with the nation Israel, Israel is God's chosen nation. But not every Jew is going to be saved. Not every Jew has been saved. So as a nation, they're chosen. As a nation, there's a future for them in God's plan. But not every Jewish person, Jewish person is saved simply because they have Jewish heritage, because they're, they're, they're linked to Abraham. That's not the case. And that's the same thing here as Peter is talking to his brethren who are primarily Gentiles, so they can't even call you know, upon Abraham as their father. They need to understand, as we do today, that we all give an account, that, that what we do, they are our actions, our decisions, our motives, our accountability before God. And so then we, as individuals, need to remember that, and we need to conduct ourselves in fear, in reverence, uh, during the time of our stay here on earth. And so, as a, as a corporate body of Christ, we absolutely want to live lives of reverence. We should strive for that, you know, as members of Community Bible Church in Anaheim. We want to be a congregation that's known for loving God and fearing God and, and being disciples of Christ. But we need to understand there is the individual accountability as well. And ultimately, on that day, that's what is going to be evaluated. Not the corporate, but the individual. So we need to carefully think about that. That if we call upon God as Father, He is the judge, and we ourselves are going to give individual accountability to Him. When we talk about that accountability, Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear. Okay? Conducting yourselves has the idea of, of calling his brethren to walk in a manner that's worthy of the God who called them, of their Father God. Uh, this uh, morning we had some officers in our parking lot. They, they love to come here. I don't say, I don't, maybe they don't love it, but they come here often. We love it. We like the fact that they're here. They'll park and they'll chat and they'll do things. So we, we enjoy their presence here. But when you see them, they are representatives of the city of Anaheim. They are representatives of the government, the law enforcement agency of Anaheim. And they have to conduct themselves in a certain manner. Uh, they cannot, they should not, they're not supposed to go and do whatever they want. They are supposed to do whatever is proper as you know, a, an officer of the law. When you look at Christians, it's the same thing. As children of God, we call God our Father. We are to live in a certain way that is appropriate for children of God. And so Peter says you need to conduct yourselves in fear. So he specifically mentions here fear. This, this fear is not terror. Uh, fear here comes from the word um, phoboia, which is where we get phobia. And, and so this is not some irrational fear. This is not a terror. This is reverence. And, and there is that high calling for God's children to walk in a reverent manner. First um, uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, let me turn there quickly. First Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, gives us an understanding of what this looks like. Chapter 2, verse 10, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father 
would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul here, as he's writing to his brethren, uh, and he's writing on behalf of himself and Silvanus and Timothy, he says, you know that we walked in a manner worthy of God. You also need to walk in a manner worthy of God as his children. You find the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, which really is, when you look at Ephesians, you can break up Ephesians into two parts. Verses, or chapters 1 through 3 are who you are in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 is how you live in Christ. And so chapter 4, verse 1 begins with, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is, this is what you have in Christ. This is what he's done. This is who you are in Christ. Chapter 4 through 6 is, and this is how you live, knowing who you are. And so we see the same thing here. We see the consistency throughout Scripture, whether it's Thessalonians or it is Ephesians or we find it in 1 Peter, that we are to live lives that are proper, that are worthy of the high calling that we have in God through Jesus Christ. And again, the fear is not terror. It's, it's not so much the, the sinners in the hands of an angry God that is going to an unbeliever. It's more that's who you were. You no longer have that fear of being destroyed by God because you're a child of God, but the fear now is reverence. You know from what you were saved. You, you know that this is who you were and what should have been, but God has saved you, so now you live in a manner that's filled with respect and reverence for God. So that's the idea here of fear, and we, we see that throughout Scripture. Uh, look at Proverbs 9, verse 10. I'll take a look at a, a few passages here. Proverbs 9, 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Interesting, as we looked at uh, verses 13 through 16 last week in 1 Peter, uh, we see here, that uh, in verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you. And here in, in um, Proverbs, we see that uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So two truths that you find here in Proverbs 9.10, you also find in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verses 15 and verse, uh, verse 17. And so here we see that we are to be people who are characterized by lives of reverence. You can also find uh, Psalm 86, 11 that speaks of the fear of the Lord. Also, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, just a few verses later. Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. And so there we are to be God-fearers, not in a general sense, but as those who live with great reverence for the God who has called us and made us his children. And, and so this reverent conduct is to last the entirety of our, our Christian lives. For as long as we have from the day of, of our salvation until the day God calls us home, we are to live lives of reverence. There is no break in between. There's no half time. There's no, I mean, it's it, 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 from the beginning to the end. And how long that is, we don't know. For each person, it's different. You have some people who were saved and maybe they lived hours or days upon the earth before the Lord called them home. You have others who were saved and lived decades the vast majority of their earthly lives. And so what Peter is saying is, is however much time you have left on earth that you're dwelling here, okay, you are to live a life of reverence. And, and even the term that Peter uses, that, that um, during your stay, okay, uh, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Okay? During the time of your stay means to dwell beside and so what Peter is saying there is this, is that you're dwelling beside the other residents of the earth. And this gives us again the understanding that this earth is not our permanent home. That we are aliens, we are strangers, we are sojourners. While you're passing through in this world to the place of glory, the eternal kingdom, as you're passing through, as you're dwelling beside those who are in this world, you need to live a life of reverence. If you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, 1 Peter, we see another exhortation to his brethren as aliens and strangers. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 
So this goes back to what Peter said in verse 14. Do not be conformed to the former lust, the fleshly lust. He says you're, you're passing through, you're passing by, you're dwelling beside. You are a sojourner. You're on a voyage. You're on a journey. This earth is not your home. You live here. You're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So therefore, as you're passing through on this, this physical and spiritual journey, you make sure that you live in a manner that demonstrates reverence unto the Lord. And so we, we see there the first reason why we are to live reverent lives, because we are going to be accountable to God. What we do in this life matters. What we do in this life is going to, uh, we're going to have to give an answer to God uh, on that day when he calls us before the judgment seat of Christ. The second reason why is because we were redeemed by Jesus Christ. They live reverently as one who was redeemed by Jesus Christ. You look at verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so here, as Peter is talking about redemption, uh, the understanding is that this is to pay a ransom. It's to pay a ransom for the release of, at times, oneself, most often on behalf of another, a slave or perhaps a prisoner of war. There is a, a ransom that is required, a payment, so that you can buy their freedom. And so that's the understanding here with the ransom, is that, that we were slaves, and there was a payment that was necessary in order to purchase our freedom. And so we were not redeemed, we were not bought back with perishable things. And so as we look at this section, this reason why we are to live reverently, we understand that the one who redeemed us is Jesus Christ. And the redemption price that he paid is the most valuable, precious price that could ever be given. Uh, and so Christ paid the necessary and acceptable cost of redemption. And that results in the transference of, of ownership. We were slaves to this world. We were slaves to sin, slaves to death. We were children of, or children of wrath by nature. We were under the power of the prince of the power of the air. We were slaves of Satan and sin. Like it or not, that's who you are when you're born into this world. But to have salvation in Christ, to be redeemed by Christ, means that you were taken out of that darkness and you're brought into the light of God and you were made one of his children. Your sins are forgiven. You are, are sealed in, with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You have the living hope, the promise of glory. You don't have to worry about those who can destroy the body because they can't touch your soul. These are all the promises. That's, that's all part and parcel of the transfer that took place, the great transaction that took place. And Peter says you were redeemed not with these futile, perishable, tangible, you know, temporal things. It's much more precious, much more valuable than that. And when you understand the price of redemption, that should motivate you to live a life of reverence. So as we look at this, this second point, we're going to break it down into kind of three sub-points. Verses 18 and 19, we'll see the precious blood of the Redeemer. Okay, that's the cost. Then we see in verses 20 and 21, the divine nature of the Redeemer. Uh, not just the cost, but the, the character of the one who paid the price. And then the gracious motive of the Redeemer in verse 21, and that's why he did what he did, why he paid that price. So verses 18 and 19, we see we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So in 18 and 19, we see this contrast. First in 18, there is the negative. Verse 19 has the positive. 18 says, this is not what purchased you. These things did not and they could not purchase you from, you know, the slave auction. What did purchase you is found in verse 19. And so there we see the precious blood of Christ. And so we find that contrast. Peter says that silver and gold, the things in this world, uh, even though they are precious, to some degree precious metals, they have some value, they have worth. There is a, a desire, people seek after those things. They are not acceptable offerings to God, not in light of the magnitude of our sin and the, the greatness of his holiness. Nothing in this created world can, can be offered to God as a redemption for the sins of mankind. 
I, I, I don't remember who it was, but I remember one preacher, maybe it was in a book I was reading, who basically said this, that if you try to, to repay God with things that are in the created world, you only dig yourself a deeper hole. You go into greater debt. Because what you're offering to him is his already. Everything that is in the universe belongs to him, so how can you pay him with something that belongs to him? You only dig yourself into a deeper hole of debt. And that's the understanding here. Is it's, it's not so much the amount of what's given, it's but that these things are perishable. They're futile. You cannot give God something that is temporal and perishable for something that is perfect and eternal. It's not an equal transaction. And so there has to be something that is, is counted as worthy by God. Uh, and so Peter here is saying you can't offer the things of this world. Uh, silver and gold, and of course the Jews and Gentiles both would have been familiar with the, the purchasing of themselves or enslaved people uh, or prisoners of war with money. You know, we, we call that the ransom, and they would go and pay the ransom. They would pay whatever the, the, the person who was enslaving them demanded in order to set them free. You didn't have to be Jewish to understand that. The Gentile world understood that as well. Now, now whether or not... Um, you know, Peter has uh, the Old Testament practices in mind. We're not positive. We can't be dogmatic. It does seem here that perhaps there's a reference to Exodus 30, uh, where there is a ransom that is paid by each individual on the Day of Atonement. They go in and they, they offer the, the ransom, the coins, for uh, their sins. Or, or perhaps even when we're talking about the blood of Christ, maybe even a reference to the Passover. But because most of Peter's brethren were Gentiles, they probably weren't familiar with those, at least not firsthand. So it's likely that Peter's making a more general reference here of purchasing someone from the slave you know, trade, the, the auction block there, or, or even just the animal sacrifice in general, because his believers would not have had a background uh, when it comes to Passover and the Paschal Lamb. But we'll talk about that uh, in, in a minute anyway. So you know, as we talk about the, the traditions, take a look at Exodus 30. Um, we won't read through all of it, but Exodus 30 gives instruction of how the, the uh, Jews are to give a, an offering of redemption. So what we see here, there's this... Um, Altar of incense, you find that in verses 1 through 11 and, and what it's made out of and how it is to be utilized. Uh, you see here Aaron is the priest at that time, and so it's talking about Aaron trimming the lamps in verse 8. You're not offering a strange incense on the altar or burnt offering, verse 9. Uh, in verse 10, Aaron makes an atonement on its horns once a, once a year. Okay, which, by the way, this past Thursday was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and so this is appropriate as we're looking at this this offering that was given. When you go to uh, verse 12, it continues, or verse 11, the Lord also spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, the shekel is 20 giras half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. Uh, so there's the impartiality. Everything is expected to be the same for each person uh, when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So you see here that the, the Jewish tradition would have been on the Day of Atonement to go in and pay a ransom for yourself. And you do that, half a shekel, and you do that for whoever you are, 20 years and older. So perhaps that's what Peter has in mind. Uh, even if he doesn't, uh, the, Jew, or the uh, Gentile mind would have understood the ransom of the slave or the prisoner of war. So whether he is referring to, to Jewish believers or Gentile or a combination of both, they both would have had some concept of the ransom payment. 
whether they are looking at the, the prisoner of war, the slave, or the ransom they're offering for themselves, uh, the half shekel could never atone for the sins of an individual. And so Peter's point is clear. The coins of this world, the, the, the currency of this world, could never be accepted by God for your sins. It's not possible. Uh, and so as you, you look at the, the futility or the vanity of these offerings, Peter said there's something that's much greater. You weren't, you, you weren't uh, ransomed by the things that you practice by tradition, the coins that buy people their freedom or purchase their freedom, uh, but you were redeemed with precious, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So here comes the positive. It's not the coins. It's not the money of this world. It's not the wealth of this world. It's not the traditions of your ancestors. It was and is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the only appropriate, acceptable ransom currency. It is Christ's sacrifice, his precious blood. And so when we talk about this precious blood of Christ, the unblemished and spotless blood, certainly for the Jew, they would have thought about the Passover lamb that we read about in Exodus chapter 12, that, that the Jews were to take a lamb that was perfect, uh, meaning it had no spot or blemish, there was no flaw in it, the best of what they had, the best of their flock, they were to slaughter it, they were to drain the blood, they were to butcher it, and they were to roast it and put the blood uh, as, an off, or as a, a sign on the doorpost and the lintel, and, and then you would have the angel pass over that house. And everyone who was under the blood of the lamb was saved, and death and judgment would pass over them. And that's why it's referred to as the Passover. So his Jewish readers would have understood that. But even the Gentile readers would have understood that, that even in pagan cultures, they call for an animal sacrifice, uh, the blood sacrifice. And so here, this really strengthens the idea that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It requires the blood sacrifice. Uh, and again, it's the perfection, unblemished and spotless. If you look at 1 Peter chapter um, 2, verse 22, you see here, look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So here we see the perfection of Christ. In his words, in his deeds, he was perfect through and through. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there are many other passages that talk about the perfection of Christ. And so Peter's point is this. Jesus died for you on the cross. His blood was shed like the perfect lamb. In fact, the greatest lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was unblemished and he was spotless. And so it's only his blood that is the acceptable ransom price or the cost of our freedom. And, and so we, we see that here. And, and when Christ... Was, was being judged on that cross by both humans and God was pouring out his judgment upon him. We understood there from Scripture, we understand from Scripture, look at Galatians chapter 3, that Christ became the curse for us, that cursed was everyone who was hanged on a tree. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Christ took upon himself the curse that was ours because we violated God's law. We could not keep the law, therefore we were condemned by the law. We had the burden of the law upon us and we were under the curse of the law. But when Christ came to earth, lived his perfect life, died his perfect death, offered that to God on our behalf, then the curse was taken upon himself and we are no longer cursed that's why Romans 8 1 says there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus why because he paid the ransom price he redeemed us he took the curse and we don't have any of that in our account anymore so here we see why do you live a life of reverence because you were purchased by the precious blood of the Redeemer look at verses 20 and 21 as we look at the divine nature of the Redeemer so we see here, in addition to the precious blood of Christ, 
being the uh, redemption price for his brethren, uh, Jesus, the Redeemer, was and is the eternal Son of God. Okay, back to 1 Peter, and we see here that Peter says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so as we're talking about the nature of Christ, we find here his eternality. Okay, he was foreknown. Okay, it's not just that God's plan was foreknown, but Christ was foreknown. Christ was there before the foundation of the world. The plan of salvation wasn't an afterthought. God didn't look at Adam and Eve in the garden and say, what do I do now? That's a surprise. I didn't expect her to take the fruit. I didn't expect him to follow his wife's example and eat the fruit. What happens next? No, salvation was planned prior to the foundation of the world. Before Adam and Eve were created, before they were in the garden, it was already preordained that there would be a plan of redemption and that Jesus Christ would be the Redeemer. And that's Peter's point. Before the foundation of the world, God foreknew Christ. He foreknew the plan of salvation. Jesus was there. And it's the eternal one who died for you. This is who paid the price. This is who offered up his life. We see the foreknowledge of God before the foundation of the world. He, he not only knew about the fall of man, but also the redemption of man. And, and so everything that was necessary to, to redeem people from their sin, it had already been determined by God. We're not talking about fatalism. We're not talking about us being these these robotic people that have no volition. We're talking about God knowing that he was going to save sinners and already planning how that was going to happen and who was going to accomplish it and how it would be applied by the Holy Spirit when he regenerates us. So it was all preordained by God. This redemptive plan, you know, the Son was chosen to be the redeemer of sinful people by, by coming to the earth and becoming the Messiah. You see here, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And so here, these, these appeared in the last times is another indication of the eternality of Christ. When you look at that phrase, the understanding here suggests a previous hidden existence, that Jesus did exist. We didn't see him. We couldn't see him because he had no physical form. But in these last times, in, in what we call the early first century, Jesus appeared physically. He was manifested, his incarnation. He came in the flesh. He existed as the Son of God and God the Son, as the Redeemer, the Messiah to come. But it wasn't until this period in history that he came, that he appeared in these last days. And so Peter is presenting this case for the, the nature of Christ being the eternal Savior, the eternal Son, the eternal God. He existed before the foundation of the world, but the incarnation didn't take place until the proper time. The time when God said, this is when my Son steps into history. This is when my Son comes to bring that plan of salvation, of redemption, you know, bring the fulfillment of it. By mentioning Jesus' appearance in the last times, Peter emphasized that believers enjoy the blessing of living at a time when God is fulfilling his saving promises. Okay. If you remember in, in Hebrews 11, or even back in 1 Peter, uh, looking at verses chapter 1, verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced through those, uh, to you through those who preach the gospel uh, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So just a few verses before, Peter said the prophets proclaimed the gospel. They were servants of the gospel, heralds of the gospel, but guess what? They didn't live during the time when Christ came to redeem man. You do. You live in this same generation. You live in these last days when Christ appeared. And so the idea here is, is that this is a wonderful thing. Christ has come and he appeared in these last times for what? The sake of you. That takes us to the last 
subpoint here, which is the gracious motive of the Redeemer. You know, Peter's brethren were living in a world that was kind of chaotic. They were scattered. Persecution was ramping up. And they, they were marked because of their faith in Christ. And so we could say it was a little uneasy for them. I think that's mild to say it was uneasy. But here Peter has given them some great words of encouragement, great words of comfort. You know, God is your Father. Christ paid the great price as the Redeemer. His shed blood. He's God himself who came to die for you. But guess what? He appeared in these last times for what? The sake of you. He died for you. He came for you. He lived for you. He suffered for you. He intercedes for you. And so this is a very personal statement here. It is, it, it is corporate. He came to save the elect. He came to save his people. But he came for you. And you and you and you and me. And Peter's saying he came for us. Fraun Mueller says this in his commentary. Uh, Believers are the end aim in the manifestation of the Redeemer. You may therefore view it as if Christ had come for you only. Now, we don't want to think that we're the most important thing and Christ can't live without us, but we need to understand that, I mean, who are we when we're measured against the universe? We're nothing. We're not even a speck of dust in the universe. And Christ came for the sake of you. That's Peter's point. What was his motive? He came because he loved sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to save you. He came to redeem you. He came to call you to glory. He came so that you would be a child of God. And as we look at verse 21 and we wrap it up here, who through him are believers in God, raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is saying that because you have faith in Christ, you demonstrate your faith in God. You're a child of God because you came through the child of God. You are a son of God. You're a daughter of God because you were saved by your belief in the Son of God. And when you believe in Him, you have faith in God. You have hope in God as well. Why? Because God raised Christ from the dead. He didn't leave Him in the grave. He raised Him and He glorified Him. So when we look at Christ who went to the cross, who died, who was buried, who, raised, who rose on the third day, who ascended, we can look at that and say, if the Father didn't leave the Son in the grave, if He was raised and He is glorified, then the promise is that we are going to have resurrection and glory. We can have great hope in those because it was already demonstrated in Christ. So then our hope and, and uh, faith is in God the Father who... You see here was, his plan was to not only accept the son's sacrifice, but to glorify him as well. Well, we are out of time for this morning. We could spend weeks and weeks on this section, but we want to move a little faster through 1 Peter. Uh, I hope that you will take more time to go back and, and reread this and think about everything that is there. Uh, it's really a rich passage, and um, it's a great reminder of the price that was paid for us. And knowing that it, was, it cost Christ everything should be a great motive uh, to say, I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to live in reverence and, and awe and fear and, and bring you know, glory to his name and not shame. And knowing that I'm going to be held accountable as a steward, I'm going to make sure I live each day and, and redeem my time and use the resources God has given uh, to live in a manner that's worthy of my